Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good luck. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. <laughs> second captain, first captain, whatever. You know when you hear a phrase for the first time in your life and almost immediately begins popping up all over the place? Has that ever happened to you? Uh, no? Yeah. Good stuff, at least one of us. <laughs> well, well, okay, give me... You're well, going to give me an example. Okay. Oh, yeah, I didn't just bring this up for no yeah. reason. Uh, uh, no, but can I just say, this is the kind of thing that then starts popping up so often that you wonder, maybe I, I must have heard it before now. Yeah. But I haven't. Where's the beef, Murph, is a phrase I'm talking about. <laughs> no, I'm pretty sure I'd never heard it before last yeah. week. Maybe explain where I first heard it, because it was when you first heard it, too. Okay, well, where's the beef, apparently, was in a Wendy's ad. No, but, but the Brian, context of it, yeah. yeah, yeah. So it, it was uh, featured in a Wendy's ad in the mid-1980s. Uh, but we heard it last week when um, it was used in a commentary of the New England Patriots' last-second touchdown uh, to beat the New Orleans. So quite a striking phrase. In the Wendy's ad, the fast food chain, it was said to... It wasn't said to do anything. It was uh, a play on how little proper meat there was in the rivals of Wendy's at the time. That was certainly their claim. So US Murph explained the the situation to us there. There I am, reading through Raymond Dunphy's book. The Rocky Road. Yeah. Get to chapter 32, and it's entitled, Where's the Beef? It's incredible. In this case... An entire chapter is called Where's the yeah. Beef. Is I, Wendy's mentioned? No, Wendy's isn't mentioned, but again, it's a very literal, much like Wendy's, it's a very literal use of this phrase, yeah. Where's the Beef? He's playing for Reading, fourth division at the time, towards the end of his career. The, a local farmer has promised them that if they win promotion, he'll give them a, pro, uh, a, a bullock. Well, he won't okay. just give them the live bullock. I mean, yeah, he'll give yeah. them the meat from the bullock. Okay, yeah. Uh, that's all very Better true. again. They get to, they win promotion. They get to the dressing room on the day where they're supposed to be presented with all this beef. And there's just these tiny, crappy little bags of bit of minced meat, bit of stewing beef, that kind of stuff. They're thinking, where's the beef? Where is the where, beef? Quite it, literally, It turns out yeah. the beef is stuffed into the pockets, the, the, the double-breasted pockets of the suits of the blazers in the boardroom. <sighs> Corporate Reading, yeah. as I'm sure Abe Duffy <laughs> called them. Official <laughs> Reading. Uh, that's that's who took those uh, those sides of steak. <laughs> well, it was that's literally official. Reading, it was also yeah. the beginning of the end of his relationship with Charlie Hurley again, yeah. uh, who was managing Reading. I'm sorry, I don't know. Maybe they they rekindled his relationship in the years since, but it didn't end well. He felt that Charlie Hurley, another great Irish player, was on the side of the um, official the, Reading. The official Reading, as opposed to. <laughs> 
the common man. The thing that you're talking about, Owen, is called frequency illusion. Frequency illusion. Or the bad Romanov phenomenon. Well, it's not an illusion because I have heard it twice in one week. Well, you just, you just weren't noticing it all the other times that it cropped up. Mm. Suddenly your attention is drawn to it. It's like you mark its card and then suddenly you start seeing it everywhere. Is that... Is but in fact, where's the be? I mean, you obviously you both heard it last week for the first time, but I think a lot of people listening to this program and myself have heard it before. I wouldn't necessarily have noticed it cropping up again. I wouldn't have noticed it as a coincidence. Frequency illusion. We will be following up on Boston Sports, Murph. Six months after the marathon bombing, the Red Sox are in the World Series. Pretty huge story. Over yeah, there. it's it's been a pretty extraordinary six months or seven months in uh, Boston Sports because obviously the marathon is a huge, huge event over there and uh, uh, tarnished, obviously, tragi- a, tra- a tragic edition of it this year. Uh, and then kind of a couple of weeks later, the Boston Bruins got to the Stanley Cup final and that was seen as a huge thing in sort of the the... the the immediate aftermath of the marathon. And then after that, uh, uh, the Red Sox, who had been the worst team in baseball last year, um, turned, the, turned their uh, all their fortunes completely around and are now in the World Series uh, and have a brilliant chance of winning it. The series starts tomorrow night against the St. Louis Cardinals. And it's uh, just it's, it, it's obviously huge, uh, the relationship between the Boston Red Sox and the city. They're absolutely intertwined and... It's so as a result, the fact that they've gotten to a World Series in this year of all other years. The process of going through a catastrophe such as that. We also want to talk about the Red Sox fans too, because it's all well and good. See, Boston Red Sox were losers for many years, Mm. and their American football team wasn't great either. But then they suddenly became this incredible powerhouse of American sport. They always had great supporters, but those supporters. We talked about the Oakland A's recently priding themselves on the fact that okay, they're never going to win. They've got a terrible stadium bad facilities, sewage building up, but they kind of pride themselves on that. There was a certain element of that to Boston fans, certainly Red Sox supporters, for many, many, basically for 86 years, yeah, between they, their previous, between selling Babe Ruth and never winning another title after that, to the one they won in was 2005. 2004, yeah. 2004 was the first yeah. one. Then they won, won one in 2007. Yeah. Now they're in another World Series final. And I'm sure maybe, given the the Boston Mar- uh, the marathon bombing and everything around that, there might be a certain amount of leeway given to their fans this year. Maybe they will be the yeah. country's favourites. But in general, I think Boston supporters... Um, I don't know, maybe they've lost a little bit of the humility. Well, the, the the key defining characteristic of being a Bostonian and being a Boston sports fan is that you're a loser. Uh, and that you're def- the defining characteristic is that you lose and you always lose. And the whole idea of being a Boston sports fan is that it's drudgery, complete and utter depression. Up until 12 so years now they've ago. now they've completely turned that around the last 10 years. I mean, it's like Mayo, effectively. You know, everyone was shouting for Mayo this year for a reason. And it wasn't... You know, it, it was nothing else other than the fact that they haven't won one in 62 years. Do you think if Mayo suddenly became the strongest... Completely! I mean, if Mayo won the All-Ireland this year, we'd be really hoping they lose <laughs> next year. Donegal got a bit of that this year, actually. Did so it? Of course did it. That's just yeah. the way sport is. I mean, you know, it's it's all well and good when you're... You know, it's easy to like a team that just never that never wins. Once they win, you know, it's normal service. Look at the Clare Hurlers in 1995. It was the greatest story... Like the most amazing fairy tale Cinderella story you've ever uh, heard, and by the time 1998 came around, everyone wanted to see them. What's that? Like Manchester United in 1993, they were like Mayo, in, effectively like Mayo. I don't in remember them being very popular winners. No, though. they were never popular. 
They weren't popular in I don't, I don't popular think they were. In, 90, in 93. I don't yeah. think they particularly were. I think there was even back I'd then. I'd say there was probably a few kind of new just saying, well, it's good to see Manchester United. Football okay. needs a strong Manchester United. But yeah, <laughs> not, not this strong. Yeah. Mm. And we're going to talk about the Heineken Cup. Luke Marshall will be on a little bit later on. He was uh, in one of the standout players for Ulster in the standout performance of the weekend, having beaten Montpellier away from home. He's also a guy who's suffered from a few concussions towards the end of last season and was actually stood down from the Irish team for the summer tour of Canada and the USA. So it'll be interesting to talk to a guy who's actually going through what a lot of people are talking about at the moment. And we will have, in fact, we'll talk to Eddie O'Sullivan and Shane Horgan right now about where we stand after two rounds of the Heineken Cup, I should say, Eddie. It's probably, it could do it a good year, I guess, given everything that's going on, all the politicking in the background. Has it been a vintage season so far? Well, I think the, the tournament has been very interesting this year as it's lived up to it, the fact that it's a very tight tournament. You know, there's only three teams um, have a 100% record so far. Um, that's two Irish teams, obviously Ulster and Leinster and Toulouse. Uh, and then you've got big shocks going along the way. I mean, obviously a big shock last weekend would have been uh, the Cardiff beating Toulon um, the week before, Munster losing Edinburgh. So it has everything that we expect from Heineken Cup and if, 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 uh, and even more so than other years it's very tight and, and um, you know nobody can call it and, and, and even who's going to come out the pools yet uh, so I think it's um, yeah it's right up there as, as always I guess Ulster are the one team who have really put their hand up certainly if the Irish teams they're the one team who have have made some sort of a statement with their opening two victories now like they were flying this time last year as well and the wheels came off a little bit is there any reason to believe it's a little bit different this time around? I think I think from the point of view of Ulster, their Achilles heel has always been the the uh, away fixtures, and they've always been very difficult to beat in, in Ravenhill. And what we always expect when they go away to struggle. I think the win in Montpellier last weekend uh, sends a shot around Europe. You know, this is an Ulster team that now believe they can go on the road against the best teams in Europe and win. And it was a very comprehensive performance. So I think Ulster have reason to believe that this year is very different for them. Shane, what do you think? Is it uh, do they look? that bit stronger again than last year because they were very quick to talk themselves up last year and they were probably right to do so they were flying at this time of the year but uh, it didn't quite happen for them uh, they probably don't need to talk themselves up anymore they're that strong Yeah I don't even know if they were talking themselves up so much uh, as actually trying to just back themselves I think there's a fine line between um, always being the perennial underdogs as Irish teams um, often are and trying to you know, to, to set out so you have a positivity in your own camp that, yeah, we, we're looking to win this competition. We want to do well in it. So I think it's a fine line and sometimes it can be misunderstood from the outside. But I, I think last year's game against, uh, I think it was Castro, was the first time they went away and won in um, in France. And that was a really important stepping stone from them. Um, that got them over a, a huge hurdle. And like the win against Montpellier, it really can't be underestimated how good it was and how, how important it is uh, for their uh, for their season. You know, um, I, I didn't think they clicked together this year. I thought they looked a better union at the start of last year. Um, they beat Leicester though, with not a brilliant performance. Certainly in the first half, they worked into that performance, and I knew they were going to be better this week against Clermont. I didn't think that um, they were going to do quite be quite as destructive as they were. Uh, sorry, against uh, Montpellier, um, I didn't think they were going to quite as destructive as they were. They were very, very uh, impressive to go there to, you know, one of the top teams in France. I think they should join top of the, the top 14 and really do a job with them. Um, I would have been going in there looking for a, a, a losing bonus point, but I think um, uh, Bessie said something really important during the week. He said, well, if this is a quarter final, nobody would be talking about losing bonus points. And I thought that was a really good 
good indicator of where their mindset is. And, you know, that's a very positive place to be. The statistic that David Humphreys pointed out, and this just puts the away win into even more uh, positive light, I guess, Eddie. He said that Ulster lost 25 of their first 26 away games in the Heineken Cup. They've won eight of their last 11, including winning at Munster and now winning at Montpellier. That's pretty formidable, considering that they've generally been strong at Ravenhill. Yeah, when you put it in that context, it's a very strong statement. Um, you know, we, we, we have been used to Ulster struggling on the road, but they certainly have thrown down a marker now. And the thing about last weekend is Montpellier were, were taking this game extremely seriously at home. They're one of the top teams in France. They basically dominated possession and, 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 and territory, and they couldn't break down Ulster. And Ulster could have won by more. Ulster missed three kicks at goal, which isn't their form. So it was a very comprehensive victory. And, and I suppose, in fairness to David Humphreys, that statistic has slipped by a lot of people because you get a kind of a headset about a team that maybe, you know, they are... They're not good on the road, but the record stands now that in recent times that's been the complete opposite. And um, for, sh- for sure, I think, you know, I, I, I always think of if you were to eavesdrop outside the changing room of a team, you know, in the midweek, you get a good indication of where they are. I'm sure there's pretty upbeat banter going on in the Ulster changing room this week after the last two weeks. Um, you know, and it'll be, be a happy camp. And especially Ron Pienaar signing up as well. All that's driven the energy in the right direction for, for Ulster. Shane, is there a danger of peaking too early, though? Is it Because this is what you generally hear now in professional rugby, and particularly with the strange way that the seasons are structured, that it's hard to be... No team really is going to be flying right throughout the Heineken Cup. Is that something that a team takes a little while to acquire, that ability to actually peak at those right times? Well, you know, your your peak areas are around the, the Heineken Cup weekend, especially for the uh, Rabo teams. They are uh, times that the different the different grading and strength and conditioning goes on. The peak times, you have a pair down just before the Heineken Cup, and a lot of the preparation, even pre-season preparation, will be looking towards uh, the two first weekends, the two second ones, and then after Christmas. So they'll be factored in, and they'll be considered already. You know, you can't... Heineken Cup is in a competition where you go, you know... I, I don't need to, you know, the team doesn't need to compete at the highest level or doesn't have to be peaking for those two weekends because you, you've seen someone like, you know, the Ospreys, for example, um, you know, if you're, not, if you're not peaking for the two weekends uh, at the start of the Heineken Cup, you can be out. And I think if you're not peaking, you're not going to win away in Montpellier. That said, you know, you have to have some, uh, some gas in the tank at the end of the year. I think there was an error made in Ulster last year. If you looked at the team selections right up until Christmas, now they, were, they played fantastic rugby and they looked really good up until I think you know just before just in December time you could see the wheels were starting to come off and because there was uh, fatigue and there wasn't the strength and depth of the squad and there wasn't enough rotation yes you always have to bear that in mind but you, ne- you need to have you need to have your top players firing at all guns at the high end cup weekends because there's no gimmies in the, in the competition we've seen it like we as Eddie alluded to at the start it's been one of the most open competitions with a, a number of, of big upsets so, you know, you, you have one big upset at home and you can be out of the competition. And, you know, if you look back at the history of Ulster's history last year, and, you know, I, I said those two games against Northampton, the away game is one of the best performances of an Irish team I've seen in a very long time. They're phenomenal. But then they lost in Ravenhill, something that they never do. And, um, the, and that really cost them, you know, progressing further in the tournament. Have Leinster done enough, Eddie, do you think, so far to suggest they'll be around at the business end? Well, when you consider that they they have missing some players and they're they're in transition in terms of some of the selections in the back line and 
um, you know, they've had to deal with a couple of setbacks in terms of the depth of their squad. I think they're, they're very happy where they are. They're still not in a place where Leinster would like to be. And, and I say that on the basis that Leinster are, are one of the most potent teams in Europe when it comes to scoring tries. They led the, the league last year on the Pro 12 scoring tries, but they've been fairly muted in that department this year relative to their own standards. Having said that, there's mitigating circumstances. You've got a new coach, you've got some new players slotting in, you've got some injuries. So on the back of that, to have two wins out of two, um, against one against a team, the Ospreys, who've caused them untold problems for years, to go away and win that game and, and then win a, a game at home last week, which we all expected. I think they're in a good place, but I, I don't think they're completely happy where they are. But that's a good that's a good thing in a sense that they know this work to do. And uh, if they can up it another notch now in the next rounds of Heineken, they'll take control of the group and then they'll be in the playoffs. And Anton's on after that for team of Leinster's experience and calibre. Yeah, we've talked, Shane, a little bit about the way Leinster have changed in defence. I'm wondering, is, is that maybe the easier part of the game to bed down when you're a new coach you can get that side of it sorted reasonably quickly maybe it's a little bit harder to sort out the, the maybe trickier proposition of scoring some tries yeah I think and you remember where you're coming from as well you're coming from a coach of um, Joe Smith who, that was really his forte as well you know attacking uh, backline uh, plays really what he was after um, O'Connor probably you know it looks if like he doesn't quite have that, that tactical nous that uh, Smith have but few do and that's not a, a, a bad reflection on, on him um, certainly the defence it's something I think is more manageable uh, less variables and less decision making uh, you know of course mo- uh, modern defence incorporates probably two systems if not three types of defensive systems at any one time depending on where you're on the pitch depending on your opposition weather conditions um, and certain variables like that but there are less decisions than there are in to be made in, in, in attacking um, in attacking rugby and if you're you know in, you have a move and Eddie will know this very well he's one of the innovators in, in Ireland about this you have a move or you have a set play and, and still our teams are very set play based you'd have a set play but your variations on that set play could be two, could be run to two to three even four variations depending on what the opposition defence do now it takes very talented skillful and um, you know aware footballers to make very often to make those decisions that takes time it takes time not just for the players to be able to do that but to be, be able to do it in the combinations that they that are picked and the combinations that aren't used to each other it's more and more difficult to do that but as you said defence you know there are some variations but very often it's a stricter more regimented plan and you can follow through on that with a little bit more ease Yeah I do want to move on just to chat a little bit about Ireland and a couple of permutations coming into November internationals but Eddie just a word on Munster it seemed like a sort of catastrophic result uh, particularly the manner of the performance in their opening game they're back they're kind back on the road now is there a chance that they they weren't anywhere near they aren't anywhere near as bad as they looked and actually maybe they can launch something this year well I think everyone expected obviously also to win up in Edinburgh and when you lose a game or expected to win in the Heineken it does sound like a catastrophe but at the end of the day it's in a way a loss and if you can survive anything and get out of your pool in the Heineken it's losing away from home. But you have to make up in a way when somewhere. Everyone had, effectively, Munster pegged to win that game. Having said that, um, I still think Munster are not over the woods. You know, they, 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 Again, they, everyone expected them to put a very changed Gloucester team to the sword last week, and they didn't quite do that. So it's, it's still work in progress for Munster, and I think it would be foolhardy to suggest they're over the woods. I still wouldn't back against them. We saw them last year again. Everyone talked them down. And uh, they got to a semi-final and lost it by, by a few points. So 
it's just Munster's way, I think. They they like the drama of the Heineken and they certainly make best use of it for their supporters. But um I think yeah, they're 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 work in progress and, and I wouldn't write them off, but I think they've they're they not settled yet in what, where they are, where they want to be. I just saw Ireland and Brian Driscoll. Just a yes, with, with Munster there, and, and I think it's, it's something that we've seen over the last number of months. They seem to be implementing two different styles. I don't even know if they're aware that they're doing it, because it seems to me when they're playing against a side that, that they think they should beat or they need to put scores on, they play in one way. And when, they play in, uh, when they're playing against teams that they think they're, you know, the backs are going to be against the wall with regards to the performance, performance or they're you know really really passionately revved up for they perform in a different way and I think we've seen that with, with uh, some of the um, ways they've played over this year into the latter stages of last year and you know I think the further we go on I think that the, the more they play that lateral play and they have been doing it you know they revert to that lateral play because I think it's it's ingrained in, in um, Penny's game plan I just don't think they implement it very well I think they do it very laterally very behind the, the gain line I didn't think it poses a threat but I and, and the, what's, what's annoying is that when you saw the way that they played against um, against Leinster and the way they played in the latter stages of the Heineken Cup last year, when they did play more direct, and listen, I, I, I like wide play, I just don't like lateral play. And when they did have that more direct, um, more direct runners um, putting side steps on, getting through the gap, offloading game, they were very, very effective. And I think that unless they revert to that, they're going to continue to struggle against sides that you wouldn't expect them to struggle against. I'll expect them to do well against sides that um, you know you'd think they're in for a tough game because they revert to to uh, I think a more sensible game plan for them but uh, against the sort of the, the mid-tier teams I, I think they're struggling Alright just on the Ireland situation now and Brian O'Driscoll in particular who seems to be the recovery from this particular calf injury is going a little bit more slowly than he would have wished there are a couple of Rabo games left before the Samoa match it's Samoa Australia then New Zealand Shane does he have to have some Rabo game time before heading into those November internationals or is he that, is, is he that experienced and battle-hardened that a player like that can just go straight in maybe not even against Samoa but maybe against Australia or New Zealand yeah I think it'd be difficult enough to go in I think if anyone's capable of it it's Brian O'Driscoll I think as well depends what you're doing in training I don't always think that you need to, to play games um, before you, you um, before you play a big game um, I even need to play sort of leading games um, and I know Eddie actually has taken over the years he's taken chances on players and put them in uh, directly from, from training or after injury directly into big games he did it with me in the, in the World Cup um, in uh, 2003 I was out for nine months beforehand my first game was a World Cup was the first game in the World Cup um, in 2003 and you know it depends what, what your lead-in time is like. It depends what you're doing in training, you know, what type of player it is. And I think, you know, if you look at all the factors, you know, I think you've got to trust Brian to, to, to make that decision for himself. And I don't think, to, I think if you look at the 13s at the moment, you know, Darren Cave is doing well up the north. Um, Macken has he's gone all right with Leinster. We wouldn't want to be throwing him in, I'd imagine, to, to, to big game international rugby at the moment. There's not too many people. We still haven't found anyone for that role. You know, I think we should be looking at Robbie Henshaw for the future, certainly, and, and sort of get him playing 13 more for Connacht. But at the moment, I think we're still quite reliant on Brian at 13. We do seem to be. Eddie, who would you put in there if, if we have to put somebody else in for Samoa or, or either of the other two games? Who would be your outside centre for Ireland? Well, the, the problem Joe Schmidt faces at this moment um, with regard to Brian O'Driscoll is something he's going to have to inevitably deal with anybody in, at the end of the season because he'll be a year and a half out of a, a World Cup and it's a blink of an eye. So we don't have a, a successful Brian O'Driscoll 
the contenders are, are, are obviously Darren Cave in Ulster, uh, Mackin in Leinster, Henshaw in, in Connacht. There was other, so, some other guys as well. Like I've always felt Luke Fitzgerald could bring something to the party, but he has been injured for so long and he hasn't played there. But they're the names, and it's very, it's very hard to know. I mean, I don't know those players really well enough. Um, and to fair to Joe Smith, even if he does know them, he's going to have to put them in the, the crucible at some point and, and find out how they operate. The problem for any Irish coach is that the opportunities to try guys out are very limited. In fact, for this year, Joe's first game in charge is Samoa. That's probably the only game you can take a punt on a player, really, um, and see, well, let's see what this guy is. Is he up to it or not? Because the following week is Australia, the following week is New Zealand, and then you're into the Six Nations. So it's, it's just very difficult to blood anybody at international level. There isn't that much latitude. But he may have to go there if Brian doesn't recover. And at some point, he's going to have to go there on a permanent basis when, when Brian uh, steps down at the end of the year. So it's, a, it's probably the most difficult area that George Schmidt will, has, to, has to manage in terms of transitioning the team. You're talking about one of the greatest players ever played the game, and in my view, the greatest player to find a replacement for him and time is getting getting close but contenders are the guys that throw out there um, they're all untried and untested which is a bit of a nightmare for an international coach yeah and the idea Shane I guess of replacing someone like that I, I would have I would assume maybe this is this assumption is um, is wrong but I would have thought that supporters and teammates would hopefully not look at it like that I think we'd, we'd, we'd all be aware that O'Driscoll has a certain standing and the person that comes in nobody's expecting him to do what Brian O'Driscoll did. Maybe there would be a certain a bit of leeway. Is that being a bit naive uh, on my part? Listen, I don't think you know anyone with, with any sort of knowledge of rugby is not. The, the, the player who comes in at 13, whether it be for Leinster or for Ireland, is not replacing Brian O'Driscoll. He's just taken the 13 jersey. It's two very different things. The, you know, Brian O'Driscoll isn't the sort of player who comes around once in a generation. He comes around you know, once in a hundred years. And you know, it's, it's, it's very unlikely that we'll see his likes you know, in our lifetime again or, or, or anything near it but that doesn't mean that the 13 role doesn't have to be filled and it doesn't mean that it, it can't be filled uh, uh, successfully by someone you know it, there's, a, it is, there'll be other areas of the team that will ha- will have strengthened you know when when Brian goes and, and that's just the way this, you know that's the way uh, rugby teams evolve that will happen someone else will come on whether it be in the front row whether it be in the back row you know I think we're very strong in the back row at the moment you know so there'll be other areas of the game that we'll be looking to exploit more but you know, that transition is going to happen, but it's, I think it's not going to really happen to the end of the season. As Eddie said there, yeah, you've got, um, I'd say probably he'll, um, Joe will start off with somebody that isn't Brian, maybe for a period of, of the Samoa game and give Brian some game time. You know, then he's ready to fire off the next two games. Brian will play the whole Six Nations if uh, he's injured, uh, sorry, if he's not injured. And then you get to the situation at the end of the year where you've got two guys who will play a lot for Leinster. I think Macken, I think Eddie's right as well I think Fitzgerald is someone that we'll all anybody who knows the talent that Luke Fitzgerald has knows that he has a capacity to play at 13 and he'd need a lot of game time there to really deliver for Ireland that's something that we might see next year because of the um, because of Brian's retirement we might even see it a bit this year I, I think it was a very close call between uh, maybe Macken and Fitzgerald and as the season progresses we might see uh, those three guys all contributing to Leinster at 13 we'll also see Darcy at 13 at some stage as well uh, 
and um, Madigan at 12. I think that's, you know, we're going to see that at some stage in, in the Rabo. And coupled with, you know, Robbie Henshaw, they said, I don't think the Earl's experiment works uh, at 13. I think we know he's a very, very, very good uh, winger and he's proved that this season. Give him a bit of time there. Give him some more time at Ireland and let him have that jersey and, you know, contribute at 14 or 11. And uh, then, um, yeah, Robbie Henshaw is a great talent. You know, Darren Cave has gone very well this year up uh, up in Ulster and he has to be looked at as well. But this transition isn't going to happen until the start uh, of the summer. And then, he, as Eddie said, he's got a, a period of time to, to find who the best 13 is before then, looking at both provincial rugby and international. Well, that's the question. That's going to be answered tonight. Tonight. So now, come here tonight. Tonight. Into Wexford Park, and they just must produce the goods tonight. Tonight. Their team is better set up tonight. Tonight. But they just. The bottom line is, Michael, they have to do tonight. Tonight. Second Captains Football. Available on irishtimes.com, Second Captains, and iTunes from 6 p.m. tonight. 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 I'm inclined to uh, agree with Shane there. I did ask the question in that manner, I guess, but I don't think the next outside centre should be seen as a replacement for O'Driscoll. It's just somebody who has to wear the jersey. That jersey that we're so used to seeing O'Driscoll wearing. Although, I saw Andrew Luck at the weekend at the quarterback for the Indianapolis Colts and they had a big win. I can't remember who it was against. But they over had a, Peyton Manning's... Over Denver, Peyton Manning's Denver Broncos. Denver Broncos. That was it. And he replaced Peyton Manning and it was... Uh, Total, very similar sort of a situation, and he was. I saw him being asked afterwards. Oh, you know, you've is this? Does this go some way towards you uh, forgetting about the me- or pushing the memory of Peyton yeah. Manning aside? You can see he's probably been asked this about a hundred times, probably about a thousand times actually. And he began to answer, and eventually he said, "Look, I don't actually have an answer for that." Yeah, I just, I, I just, and he seems like a very nice, polite guy. He's just like, I, don't, I, I don't really know how to answer that. I'm just trying to play football. Yeah, here. I think, uh, I think it's more of a problem in. Um, say in American football or in rugby where a position is a position right I, I, the way Gaelic football and hurling is gone now is that you know you're a forward if you're a forward you play in like six different positions if you're a defender oftentimes you're going to be asked to play across the the, the back line yeah. I mean if you're a number 13 you know a number 13 does a very specific set of tasks so I, I can like obviously you know you're right in that you know we can't measure you know you're not going to measure the next guy up against Brian Driscoll. But of course, the thing is, you actually are. I mean, he's there wearing his jersey, playing in his position, trying to do all of the jobs that Brian O'Driscoll did so brilliantly. I mean, it's really unfair. Hopefully when O'Driscoll does retire, he'll step away and not go to matches because you can imagine the TV directors picking him, picking his face out when the number yeah. 13 drops a ball on. <laughs> is there any chance of just retiring the 13? Retired 13 jersey, that'd be interesting. Well, I, I, Simon I is nodding vigorously. I think that's an excellent. It, work, uh, it works in American sport when you retire the number 57 or something. But Argentina did it, didn't they? Or they certainly tried it for the 98 World Cup. They sent a squad with numbers 1 to 9 and 11 to 24. Or, did they? Yeah. Uh, they retired Ariel Ortega's number 10 jersey? Well, they said, uh, they said no one. It just so happens that we don't have a number 10 in our squad. Yeah. And FIFA said. No, you're going to have a number 10, I'm yeah. sorry. So it had to be Ortega. Yeah. And obviously he ended up getting sent off as they were knocked out by Holland. Yeah, now that's a serious position where everybody was and continues to be compared to Maradona up until now. Of course, now it's going to be Messi. So the next yeah. well, 20 I mean, number 10s to come along with, or whatever position you want to call Messi's. Didn't the, uh, didn't the Dutch team in like the 1970s not have any... They didn't give out their numbers, you know, with due regard for how... 
you know, the usual setup is, you know. Well, Argentina did that, did, did, did it uh, alphabetically yeah. for a couple of World Cups. Mar- Mar- Maradona wore 10 anyway, uh, yeah. although he should have been 12. Oh, I thought you meant by alphabetically that they did it by letters. Like, didn't Leicester used to do that in some of the other English teams? In oh, rugby, like I mean. Number yeah, K a, sort of thing. A, B, C, I think. I'm pretty sure. Did they? Yeah. Oh, that's ridiculous. But uh, that's that's the most ridiculous Just, thing I've ever heard. Yeah. But I mean, if, if, if we were to do that alphabetically, then at least the number 13... Would just be a randomly assigned. Would, would, it could be the outside. Like Russian figure. roulette. Yeah, but it could be someone else. I mean, the consequences are just as damaging, um, but at least it doesn't fall to you as a result of your position. Maybe there's or, two people trying to fill the boot, uh, boots of Brian Driscoll as opposed to one, you know? Maybe well, that's just two people who are being crushed. Under all right, Ulster Centre, Luke Marshall joins us now after a victory over Montpellier away from home at the weekend. Luke, congratulations, first of all, on that win. Was that the best victory you've had so far since getting into the Ulster team? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, I didn't didn't play last year in the in the cast game, which was a great result as well. But um, yeah, for me, it's probably definitely the best um, best one I've had in Ulster. Um, just to go over to such a tough place as Mumbai and, and get their win, uh, it was great. So it was. I, I, I guess it, it, being away from home, it shouldn't or home and away. It, there's always debates, I guess, about why it's so important. But it certainly does seem to be in rugby, and especially in the Heineken Cup, but, and particularly against French teams. You're going away, you're playing Montpellier, they're fully up for it. Uh, so to get a win in those circumstances, I guess, just, just gives the team a certain belief. Yeah, definitely. I think most people sort of love watching us going over there, expecting us to you know, maybe get a lead and bonus point at best. Uh, and uh, obviously Montpellier had a great start to their domestic season that they're unbeaten. Um, so I think we were definitely back against the wall going over there, but we had still the belief in the team that we could go over and get, get a result, get a win. From your own point of view, Luke, you're back having had concussion towards the end of last year. You suffered, I think, a concussion in three consecutive matches, I'm right in saying? Yeah, yeah. How are things now with regards to that? How are you feeling? Yeah, I've haven't had any problems um, at all since, since it happened. Um, I've been, I was grand in pre-season and uh, obviously through the, the game so far, so I haven't had any issues. And I've, I've taken a couple of walks to the head and nothing's happened. So uh, I think I've crossed it I'll uh, continue. I'll stay healthy. There have been a lot of stories recently, and uh, more research is being done. And I guess a lot of people are looking at the terrible things that have happened over in the NFL. Is that something that uh, do you feel comfortable, kind of reading those stories and reading about long-term effects and that kind of thing? Um, yes, yeah, so it's just you know it's one of the risks you, know, you take. You know, playing the game it's a physical sport, and I suppose sometimes these things happen. Um, but I think um, I think there's definitely a lot more. Uh, Emphasis on concussions and you know, more precautions are being taken. Um, so I think that the doctors definitely know a lot more stuff about it now. So if I'm comf- comfortable, uh, you know, sort of putting the health in their hands and getting they're ready to make the calls if players are fit to play or whatnot. Is it something maybe that your family would worry about even possibly more than you? Yeah, well, I, I think they think mum and dad would definitely worry about it a bit more than myself. Um, but especially with, you know the, the stuff that's been in the, in the press recently, I suppose. Um, but I think it, once again, I think it's you know that it's one of the it's a risk I take, you know, for some playing in rugby, you know, it's a sport, and it's one of the things that comes from it. Were you happy enough though to take the summer off because you would have ideally been going over and playing for Ireland and Canada and the US, but it was deemed that the best thing to do was to just take a break for a few months. Do you think that was probably the right call? Oh yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, I think um, it was just you know it wasn't worth the risk. You know, it, you know, it had a couple of bad knocks in the head and. You know, to miss out in, in two games, you know, over the summer, you know, I think that was that was definitely the smart thing to do. I think there was no point of uh, you know jeopardising the, the career or, or emotional health, you know. I think it was a couple of months rest was exactly what I needed. 
Okay, Luke, well, good to hear you're not suffering ill effects at the moment anyway. And um, with the international season coming up as well, we wish you good luck in selection. Thanks very much for talking to us. Cheers, thank you. Yeah, it's an interesting take. I guess you're talking to a player going through this problem at the moment and I thought it was probably fairly self-explanatory, I guess, in a way that his parents are going to probably be doing more worrying about it than he is. And you can see why. This this is what we've talked about the whole time, that players need to be nearly protected from their own bravery sometimes. And in fairness, he was taken out of that t- tournament over the, the summer, given a few months off. And at the very minimum, that seems like that's what... Uh, what needs to be done. Now, players have taken, was it Berk Barnes for Australia? Took himself out of the fire and I just decided himself, listen, I'm taking, I think it was a year out of it. So it, Richie McCaw took six months off. That can't be done. Yeah. It's probably a bit easier when you're Richie McCaw, Berk Barnes and you're a lot more established. Although it was quite a long time ago that Richie McCaw did that, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, it no, was well, he took, he took six months out even just uh, in the last kind of 18 months, didn't he, Simon? Yeah, something like that. Yeah, so I mean, I think he's, he's, he has done, he's done that uh, and as you say, it is quite a bit easier when you're Richie McCaw and you're the most beloved New Zealander, not just a New Zealand rugby player, New Zealander in the country. Just on the O'Driscoll injury that we're talking about earlier on, it always excites me when sports people use space age technology to, you know, stuff that NASA built to get us to Mars, really. Okay, yeah. And they just use it to fix their. Well, we haven't gotten to Mars yet, half. so. Well, exactly. Maybe O'Driscoll needs to ask who, who, he's, who he's putting his groins in the hands of. <laughs> he's using Alter G anti gravity treadmill to recover from his calf strain. Well, obviously, I mean, that's well, what I do. May I finish? The anti-gravity technology used by some high-flying circus performers, Simon tells me. Now, Mike Ross is also injured. He's just doing a few stretches. <laughs> just stretching those calves. Listen, just rest and then maybe stretch it and see, see, see how you feel then. Time now for a bit of this. That's right, you're a real Irishman. You get the potato yeah. I left in your dressing room there? <laughs> the potatoes and the puchine. Huh? And the puchine. Oh, yeah, there you are. Bread, yeah, in uh, County Meath, a place called Navin. Oh, oh, it's a tough time to be a part of the Irish diaspora. Our little country continues to go from strength to strength. Our national football team is the talk of international sport. And our beautifully tempered climate evokes coups of envy from nationalities the world over. So for those of you living far from our idyllic land of milk and honey, I can only offer this, our almost weekly Pierce Brosnan emigrant shout-outs. And I hope that this will sustain you for another week of subsistence living in dingy, rain-soaked hovels in places such as Southern California, from where Angelo Fiorini has sent us an email. Dear second captains, with LA being less than two hours away, it's my ultimate goal in life to repeat the feat of one of your listeners and one day visit the Pibezo Holy Grail of the Hollywood Walk of Fame. For now, you'll have to settle for the uninspiring environment of my back lawn in uh, Temecula, Southern California, or as the kid, cool kids call it, SoCal. So, Southern California it is. Uh, I've just spent the last three hours performing the rather mundane task of assembling some newly purchased garden furniture. This was made somewhat bearable by listening to all four of last week's Second Captain's podcast back-to-back. Top stuff as always, lads. Uh, keep on trucking, says Angelo. Angelo's come a long way from Cashel, is all I can say. Oh, he's, he's from Cashel, is he? Well, four uh, back-to-back. Oh, I don't think so, but we, we met him at the Cashel Roadshow. Oh, very good. Looks a bit like David Villa. He well, he's wearing a, a second, ca- a green second captain's T-shirt from uh, Euro 2012. So there you go. extra brownie points for that. Uh, Owen Curtin from Galway is uh, having a tough over in Canada, uh, having discovered that quite literally it's like a different country over there. Yeah. Uh, where am I? Here we go. Yes. Uh, how are the boys? I'm exiled in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. No one appreciates or gets satire here, says uh, Owen. <laughs> or engages in any non-ice-based sports. Uh, you keep my level of homesickness just below the toxic level. So thank you, gents. P.S. Any chance of a show in Canada someday soon? Hashtag 
true commitment to the diaspora. Uh, well, old Canada doesn't sound great. You haven't painted a very good picture of it there, but I suppose, I mean, if you want to get in touch with some well, major you know, corporations. Let's just uh, say, you know, a trip to Canada might we be... Could, we could work something out. I don't know. Yeah. I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm just spitballing. We'd better go to know. America, though, than in the US, but listen, we'll go to listen, Canada every hand. My cousin's emigrating to Canada today, actually. Oh, yeah? Oh, well, the yeah, very he's, best looking. He's going to Vancouver, though, not Calgary. They could hook up. I'll give him uh, Owen's email. Uh, and finally, Jennifer Quinn's been in touch. Uh, hi, Kieran. That just goes straight to me. Okay, that's fair enough. Uh, here's my husband, Neil. Straight to the middle. Uh, from Limerick, living in Brussels and backpacking around Peru and Bolivia. He went for a drink in the Estadio Bar in Lima and bumped into this lad with his P. Bezos sign. So Neil jumped in for a photo op. The man in question is, of course, a life-size replica of Lionel Messi uh, having a pint in full Barcelona strip. <laughs> a little weird. <laughs> having a pint? Yeah. So, um... It's, yeah, quite odd. So, uh, thanks, Jen, for getting in touch. I was actually in Lima once myself. Yeah. Uh, as I recall, it was at the end of a month of traveling around South America. So all I remember is lots of roundabouts and me being in Starbucks for a lot of for a lot of the time. But I'm sure it's a lovely place. I suppose coffee is a is a locally grown locally grown. Yeah, product. they didn't have to go far for that. So that was, in a sense, authentically uh, Peruvian. Yeah, <laughs> uh, not really. Uh, that's not really how it felt at the time. I can tell you. Uh, loads more emails in this week, anyway. So keep them coming to second captains at irishtimes.com and uh, P. Bezel will return next week. Coming up at six o'clock tonight. That's... Yeah. <laughs> they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm, walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. What are you doing down here, you Johnny man? <laughs> That's right, Owen. It's the publishing sensation of the century. And the question that everybody wants answered in this new book by Alex Ferguson, my autobiography, second autobiography, in fact, uh, if you count all his other books, about his 10th or 11th book. Um, the question, of course, that everyone wants, wants answered is what exactly did happen with that whole Rock of Gibraltar thing when you sued the major shareholders of the club? And I can actually read you out in full the story of what happened right now. Right. My understanding was that I had a half share in the ownership of the horse. Theirs was that I would be entitled to half the prize money. But it was resolved. The matter was closed when we reached the settlement, agreeing there had been a misunderstanding on both sides. <laughs> That's it. That's it. <laughs> that is the entire Rock of Gibraltar uh, story in this. It didn't affect my love of racing, and I'm now in good terms with John Magner, the leading figure at Coolmore, uh, adds Alex Ferguson. I was at no point sidetracked from my duties as manager of Manchester United. He, he and, notes. <laughs> and, and that's it. So, I mean, yeah, that, that's, that's pretty much all he has to say about it. There's 16 or 17 pages on Roy Keane, though. Oh, that's a fair chunk. He's got to have something interesting to say there. Oh, he's a, a, full, he's a, a full lot, chapter. He has it? a lot to say in there, Owen. It's one of those... Uh, Where is the thief? Is it the title of the chapter? Yeah. Phenomena in a... Uh, the title of the chapter, I think, is Roy Keane. And it's one of those, those things which is so common in literature, where a character undergoes change. Uh, he starts mm. out one way, but then by the end of the chapter... You have quite a different view of what he's all about. Friends become enemies, enemies become friends. And that's one of those options. Yes. Describes quite well <laughs> what happens in this chapter. So we'll talk a little bit about that and, and various other things. And also Patrice Evra, who's, um, who's had a go at uh, pretty much every major pundit in France. Uh, so uh, in, one, in, one big, uh, in one big go. So I uh, wonder how that's going to play out for him. Nothing to say about David Ginola, though. 
No, well, we might we might get to David Ginola as well. All right, we are joined now by Kevin Cullen of the Boston Globe to talk about the World Series starting tomorrow night. Kevin, we were talking a bit about this earlier on and what it means to the city of Boston, but can I ask just from a personal point of view as a Bostonian and a proud fan of the Red Sox, are you excited yourself about the World Series? Yeah, because this was really unexpected. This This Red Sox team came from literally last place and then produced the best record in baseball this year, and uh, no one saw it coming. And I think uh, the timing of it this year after the, the marathon bombing, I think, is, is a little extra special because the, the town is still a bit wounded, and, um, you know, there are a lot of people walking around with uh, PTSD as a result of what happened, and there are a lot of people walking around without a limb. Um, so I really do think, in fact, one of the most beautiful moments in the uh, ALCS uh, against the Detroit Tigers is the choir from St. Anne's, the parish in Dorchester, which suffered uh, the, the, that's the parish of the Richard family. You may recall Martin Richard was the eight-year-old boy who was killed at the marathon. And that choir sang uh, the national anthem at at one of the Red Sox games. And um, it was the one actually that David Ortiz at that dramatic home run. And um, the the choir was led by Jane Richard, the seven-year-old girl who lost her leg when her brother was killed. So uh, there wasn't a dry eye in the house uh, that night. Just from the player's point of view, Kevin, I'd imagine it's... uh, I guess they'd be walking a tightrope in a way because they have to take uh, cognizance of the grief of the city that they represent, whether they're from the city or not. They also have to go out there and be professional and do their jobs and maybe not rely too much on emotion. That seems to be something they've obviously, they've obviously handled that balancing act pretty well this year. Um, David Ortiz, who we uh, affectionately call Big Poppy, he has spoken quite eloquently and poignantly about the fact that... Um, he every day he goes to the ballpark he thinks of the the bombing and the victims and he plays for them every day and uh he's sort of the emotional heart of that team and a number of other players have spoken about it dustin pedroia um will middlebrooks the third baseman they just they're very cognizant of that and and like i said they've carried themselves this team has been very very classy and i don't know if you recall but that um the about an hour before the bombing, the Red Sox had had a dramatic walk-off win. They play a morning game every Patriots Day, the day of the marathon. And it's done on purpose so that the, when the crowd gets out around 2 o'clock, they'll walk down from Fenway Park and Kenmore Square down to the, the race um, course. And so thousands upon thousands of people leave Fenway Park. There were 36,000 people in the park that day. And a number of the victims were actually had attended the, that Red Sox game. So there is a, there's an awful lot of symbolism, um, real and emotional, uh, attached to this team in the marathon bombing. I can't even, uh, I guess people would just assume that a team who is successful is going to be loved by their fans. It doesn't always necessarily happen that way, though. It certainly seems that there is, there is a great bond there. Um, is that attitude do you think by as you say the classy way in which they've handled themselves and the team have handled themselves in the aftermath of the bombing oh absolutely and and this was like i said this was a team that grew on um boston and the environments late because i don't think anybody really thought they were going to be much this year uh, i mean that we we have a love hate relationship with um with the red sox um I've compared them to Judy Jones, the character in the great F. Scott Fitzgerald uh, short story that 
kind of teases you all along and then you fall in love. And once you express your love for her, she, she runs away from you. And that's what the Red Sox do to us all the time. And, uh, but this team is different. It is special. And, um, the, I, I'm sure you followed the beard thing. Half of them, most of them have beards. I said they look like a collection of Orthodox rabbis, and um, they really, really did grow on the town because of their attitude. And uh, there's nothing really cocky about them. There's, they just go out and do it. There's not a lot of braggadocio. They, they, they aren't like that. They don't. I mean, the, the the biggest thing they do is after they hit a home run, like Mike Napoli or Johnny Gomes, is everybody pulls their beards. <laughs> So it's, it's been fun. It's been a real fun run with this team. Uh, the fact that they've managed to come, as you say, from sort of last to first, and they've really come from nowhere, people weren't expecting them to do it this year. How have they managed? I can't think of you know, a lot of the sports that we'd follow closely over here. I mean, that just wouldn't happen in the Premier League uh, soccer, for example. It wouldn't happen in a lot of sports, I think, that a team not expected to do anything can go all the way to the final, essentially. What is it that they've gotten right this year, do you think? Well, first of all, the most important thing they did was shed their manager, Bobby Valentine, who was just absolutely horrible. Uh, John Farrell will probably be named manager of the year, and um, he would have done that even if they came in second place. But he's been extraordinary. He has handled – the other thing is you just can't – baseball, you know, most of it's pitching. It really does come down to how good is your pitcher. Good pitching always hits – always beats good hitting and the Red Sox starting pitching has been phenomenal, but it's relief pitching has been absolutely incredible. Now, I don't know how much you've followed this guy, Koji Uyahara. Now he's a Japanese guy. He's never really succeeded big in the, in the American, in the uh, net major leagues. He's a journeyman. He's 38 years old. He's the oldest guy on the team. And he was their number three reliever of closer, the guy that comes in and closes the game out. Now, Andrew Bailey, who they spent a lot of money on, he got hurt. Then the guy that replaced him got hurt. And they just took Koji because he was there. And he has turned into the most dominant closing pitcher uh, in baseball. I mean, his, his numbers are just phenomenal. And he just doesn't he doesn't give up hits. He doesn't give up walks. And he strikes out about three quarters of the batters he's been facing, which is really extraordinary. Now, that lineup that Detroit just brought in here, people are still scratching their heads and saying, how did the, how did the Red Sox beat the Tigers? And really, it just comes down to is that the Red Sox had extraordinary relief pitching between Craig Breslow, um, another uh, uh, Japanese pitcher named Tarazawa, and then Koji. Koji was just lights out. And that was the difference because, frankly, the, the Tigers had better start, pit, starting pitching um, than the Red Sox did. But that's what it comes down to. You have to close out games. And this team has been extraordinary. I actually tw- tweeted this out uh, last week. I was watching the game at the Erie Pub, which is a very famous um, Irish pub in Dorchester in, Mass- in, in Boston. And um, I noticed that the Irish guys, when Koji was on the mound, they were calling him Huey. And the Irish guys call him Huey O'Hara. And so they said, come on, Huey, come on, Huey. And uh, it's actually taken off after I tweeted that. It's like a lot of people in Boston now, call, they call Koji Huey O'Hara. So we've made him Irish. How are the fans being viewed by the rest of America, do you think, at this point, Kevin? Clearly, the there was a certain, I guess it was a massive pride that Bostonian, that particularly Red Sox fans could take in the many, many years, the 86 years, in fact, between their previous World Series and the one they won then in the early 2000s. They then won another one shortly after that. They're back in a World Series again. Have they managed to remain grounded or have they become, as most fans are when their team starts winning, a little bit cocky about things? 
I'm, I'm sorry to say that I think an awful lot of Boston fans are cocky, and it's really not my opinion. I actually was in San Francisco last night and having a, a drink in a bar in, in North Beach, which is the Italian section of San Francisco. And it became known to the people at the bar that I was a Boston guy because once I opened my mouth, I kind of give it away. And they made some remark. One guy made a remark. He goes, that was a hell of a series. He goes, I got to be honest with you. I hate Boston teams because of Boston fans. But after the marathon, he says, we're all, we're all pulling for you this year. But he goes, just this year. Because <laughs> Boston fans, like they have been absolutely spoiled. My my sons, my youngest son is seventeen. My Brendan, and he has seen the the Patriots win four Super Bowls. He's seen the Red Sox win two World Series. He's seen the Bruins win the Stanley Cup. He's seen the Boston Celtics win the NBA championship. And I try to explain to him, Brendan. This will never happen again in your life. They will not win that many championships the rest of your life. This was really a very unique – it's a unique era in Boston sports history. And it has produced, um, I think, complacency and it has produced some – I would compare – I would – in an Irish context, we're very much like Kerry football supporters. Take it for what it's worth. <laughs> I'm sure the people from Kerry mean, uh, I presume you mean very grounded and, and whatever it might be in success, but I think I understand what you're getting at. Is there any backlash? Are there any Boston people, maybe older Boston people, who saw all the lack of success? And will you say you try to say it to your son to just keep a level head, but maybe not everyone can do that? Yeah, well, it's, it's funny because after the Red Sox won it, in 2004, there were a lot of people who like, it's almost like they were hanging on. A lot of people died and they said they were hanging on to see this. And, uh, but I, I think obviously the longer, uh, the older you are, the more you realize that the Red Sox have only recently been identified with success. That in fact, they and the Chicago Cubs were the examples of utter futility. And it's interesting because I was in Chicago during the summer and I actually went to three Cubs games at Wrigley Field, which with Fenway Park is probably the coolest old stadium in in America. And the fans there are really they used to like relish being losers. That that idea that they haven't won since the the curse of the billy goat, the guy that got turned away with the billy goat at Wrigley Field. I don't think they feel like that anymore. And the more a lot of people I talk to in Chicago say they point to Boston and say it seems like it's a lot more fun to be a sports fan in Boston than it is in Chicago. And it is. I mean, we are absolutely spoiled for choices. As I said, one of the reasons this town was very slow to embrace this Red Sox team, it was twofold. First of all, it was because no one really thought they were going to be that good. And the second thing is the Bruins went to the you know the NHL finals against the Chicago Blackhawks. And that, it, it, it is a real hockey town. Boston's a huge hockey town. And that, those things went till you know, middle of June. So it really wasn't until the summer that everybody started to say, wow, the Red Sox are pretty good. And then they really got into the team because you, know, you have to understand that I think there's only the only guy left over from the 2004 team that won that that ended that 86 year drought is Big Poppy. Mm. And then I think the 2007 team, I'm thinking it's just Pedroia. I'm trying to think if there's anybody else, Poppy and Pedroia. So this is a completely new team um, and half the players, nobody even knows them. Uh, they just came out of nowhere. On that note, we'll leave it there. Listen, Kevin Cullen of Boston Globe, great to talk to you and enjoy the series. Same here. All the best. And for all our St. Louis fans out there, we do apologise for the Boston slant to the conversation. But Murph, you did point me in the direction of a fascinating 
St. Louis Cardinals well, tidbit. I, th- I thought you'd like it. Listen to this, Ken. One mm-hmm. of the greatest WWF wrestlers of the 1980s, Macho Man Randy Savage, was drafted by the Cardinals back in 1968. Really? Yeah. How old is he? Pretty old. Well, uh, old and uh, depending... You know, I mean, the, he has passed on to his eternal reward, oh, Ken. Oh, I mean, course. some... Please, some respect. Ultimately, of course, he chose the sport in which you'd have to do marginally less steroids. Well, yeah. <laughs> I think it's up to, open to debate, to be honest, but nevertheless. <laughs> That's it for us. Thanks, Murph. Thank you, Ode. Thank you very much. Thanks, Ken. Thank you, Ode. Thank you, Ken. Thanks, Thank guys. You, Thanks for listening. That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. 